Ladies and gentlemen, this is your places call. All right, everybody, back to one. Stand by lights one and sound one. Camera speeding. Audio speeding. Lights and sound. Go. And action. Hello, everybody. Hey, all. Welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. I am Tyler. And I am Stephanie. And we are back for another week of fun with an amazing guest and uh, some great news. Just yeah. to start our uh, newest interview, we have a new Patreon member. It's perfect. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get the name right this time. Yeah, you will. Ben Holmes, uh, one of Stephanie's cam, who has decided to back us up for our uh, Patreon account. So you, my friend, get an awkward compliment. Uh, your awkward compliment today is, you know, not everybody is cool enough to rock a collective stamp workbook, but you are the epitome of cool. You are Fonzie with a collective stamp workbook. So I applaud you. I'm jealous of you. And I'm so happy that you spent four hours of your time last Tuesday night showing me that workbook. It was super Thank Could you, so you imagine if he actually had one and you didn't know? That would have been <laughs> hilarious. He probably uh, I would also <laughs> like to point out that uh, now I have two of three brothers. So brother number three, you, if you're listening, uh, you're the one that loves me the least because you are not financially supporting this endeavor. Uh, <laughs> So today um, actually is somebody we haven't met yet, um, but we're very excited to talk to. Our uh, previous guest, Talia, hooked us up with this gentleman. Um, he is a director, actor, creator, um, and uh, please give a warm welcome, even though he won't hear it and neither will we, to Dan Ast. Dan, let us, uh, tell us who you are, what you do, why we're interviewing and meeting you today. <laughs> uh, well, um, my name is Dan Ast. Uh, I'm a filmmaker. I live in Los Angeles. I've been here for just under 15 years now. Um, and I make my living freelance as an editor for now. Um, but trying to kind of transition more into you know making a living as a as a writer and a director okay. uh, and I spent a lot of my time especially over the last decade or so working with you know a close group of friends um to to kind of self-produce our own projects uh feature film and documentary series at one point the most recent one was a um kind of a, a, a mystery thriller TV show that we, we just kind of independently produced. And that took several years to make. So I end up spending a lot of my time, you know, putting a lot of time and energy into self-producing our own stuff. That's awesome. What, uh, what sort of editing jobs do you, I mean, obviously it's freelance, so you, you take what you can get, but is there any certain type of editing gig you focus on to, to make your daily bill? Yeah, uh, I do a lot of like um, documentary work, like short documentary um, projects or uh, corporate sizzle reels, um, internal stuff a lot of the time. Um, or uh, one of my main clients is um, is a nonprofit. They do a lot of like short documentary works that they like. Um, they'll, they'll go film something and then they'll send me a couple days worth of footage and say, we think it's about this. And then you just kind of figure out how to tell a story with that. 
which I think is part of the fun. Like, um, cause to me, like filmmaking is all storytelling. Yeah. And I do think about, like, I've, I've kind of had this, this mantra that writing, directing and editing are the three main intersections of storytelling in film. Um, and they're all kind of like a form of writing, you know, you have writing, you're writing as you direct, so to speak, and then editing is kind of your final rewrite. So I think it's been kind of fun when, when they throw documentary footage at you and they say, here's the prompt to kind of find the story with footage, without a script, without transcripts, things like that. I think that just years of that has been a helpful skill set to build as well, just kind of finding the story inside of something there. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like I mean, the documentaries that I've seen it, are very uh, directive in the sense of um, they're trying to either prove a point. They're, you know, like a making a murderer or a, uh, even just, uh, I don't know, more informational ones. Um, and so it's weird that that power is almost handed over to you from these companies to be like, this is what the story we want to tell with the footage we've taken. And like, it, it feels almost kind of backwards. Do you feel like that's actually how most documentaries are made or is it depend depending on the subject i feel like most documentaries are probably not made that way um i think that there's a lot of probably planning and writing on the fly like mm. I, I imagine especially like investigative documentaries or just trying to find a story in like a true crime documentary i think there's a lot of you know well so and so said this in this interview and it's a reveal so we're gonna have to like go talk to this other person about that and include that in our list of questions and then go get some b-roll of that and then bring it back to the first person for a rebuttal and like i think there's a, probably a lot of that that has to get built into the shooting of the project mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but i do think that um in in film overall but particularly in documentary there's probably a lot of refining and rewriting and discovery and fleshing things out in the editing process mm -hmm. um that said i think i think traditionally a lot of you know uh documentaries and documentary television are kind of built around like a story producer who goes and looks at all the transcripts and figures out how to tell the best story across several pages of transcripts and interviews and so and so said this and then i'm gonna find the same word in the you know apple mm -hmm. f and so and so said this so i'm gonna put these <laughs> together and um so i do think that documentaries tend to be very written even before the editor gets to them sure um but uh i i think it's been kind of fun just you know when it's like a when it's an ngo with an overall message and they're just saying like we want to talk about the power of what we do and we're going to go to this place and we're going to kind of give this gift to whoever's there and we're just going to film it, you know, and get these emotional reactions and stuff. Um, you don't really need a script so much as you just kind of need the two or three or four interviews sure. that they've got to build your story and then to, you know, use the supporting footage and, and figure out what's there. So it's kind of fun learning to reverse engineer, you know, um, and tell a story. I don't know about backward, but, but you know, kind of find it based on what's available. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. Um... The, the editing process always astounds me, especially when it comes to documentaries. And I, I want to kind of take a look back and ask you how how all this started, how you hopped on your filmmaking journey. What what inspired you? You know, what what is your origin story, so to speak? What terrible <laughs> second grade play were you in that made you go, I want to do this? <laughs> um, well, I, 
I've always been interested in writing. I've always really enjoyed reading and writing um, and storytelling. Uh, I'll probably return to that a lot. But um, yeah, I used to write a lot and I thought I was going to be a novelist. And I got to high school and they had a really good video productions program mm -hmm. at, at this high school. And I went to a video club meeting kind of on a whim. You know, it was like an air conditioned place to go have lunch in Florida. Um, so we <laughs> went to the video club and, uh, and it was just a really cool space with a lot of nice people and like a really cool teacher, Mr. Brunning, who still friends with this to this day. Um, and I brought him some horror stories that I had written some like, you know, 10, 15 page slasher stories. Cause I was a big horror movie fan growing up and, you know, I still am to some extent. And, um, and he was like, oh, these are, these are cute kid, but like, nobody's going to do it for you. You're going to have to do this yourself. And there was just kind of this moment of like, I had never considered that. You know, I'd, I'd never considered that you'd have to do it, that you could do it yourself, that filmmaking was this accessible thing. And, and in a lot of ways, it's not, especially 20 years ago, it wasn't, you know, an accessible thing. Um, but, uh, but the resources were there and it was like, well, why the hell not? So I uh, started trying to make them on my own with friends, like on weekends in the backyard and, you know, had made a bunch of weird little slasher movies and, um, and comedies and things like that. Uh, and at some point I was just kind of, I don't know, halfway through high school, I was like, yeah, I'm in. I think this is what I want to do. Like, this is how I want to tell stories. Um, it's, you know, in my mind, it's the most collaborative art form because it kind of incorporates all the other art forms that came before it, whether it's, you know, photography or set dressing or acting, or, you know, it's just all these other things. And then it was such an original art form unto itself that they had to invent a new art form for it. Like film editing was invented for film. It didn't exist before that. And so um, that, that's just really interesting that you have to master or work with all of these other masters of these art forms in order to collaboratively put one piece of art together um, to tell a story. And so, yeah, I, I was really interested in that, uh, really enjoyed it. Um, and decided that that's what I was gonna do. And I ended up going to Florida State University's film school. Um, and that's in Tallahassee, made some really great friends there. And a lot of them I still work with to this day. Uh, our cinematographer on uh, my series, LA Macabre, she has, uh, she's been a friend since film school. Uh, she shot a feature that I did. She created a documentary series that we did together. Um, and uh, she was the cinematographer on all of LA Macabre, which is not a small undertaking. Um, so yeah, just a lot of really great friendships from FSU that are still going to this day. It's a really solid film school. Wow, that's incredible. And do you feel like, uh, I don't know, you've made so many connections along the way. Do you feel like you're gonna carry this team on to, to each and every project? You feel like your family's continuously growing? Yeah. Yeah. I really do. That's a great way to put it. Um, that's exactly how I feel about it. Uh, I really do, um, believe that it kind of, it kind of does need to be a family, especially at the Andy level. Um, but you know, I think that if you can carry that family and beyond the Andy level, that's a very positive, healthy thing that maybe you don't see often enough. Yeah. Um, but I know that, uh, there's no way we could make the things that we make. <laughs> I have two chihuahuas. No worries. <laughs> 
now. <laughs> That's the favorite part of this podcast. <laughs> you know, like sometimes I wonder if they're if they do this all day and I don't notice, or if they really do just wait until I'm on a podcast. Because uh-huh. um, I think they've made an appearance on every podcast I've ever been on. That's um, awesome. But uh, they. Um, Sorry, I, I uh, trying to remember where I was with that. Um, yes, the family. You, like you really, we couldn't have made La Macabre, or we couldn't have made you know any of our other projects if we just weren't really invested in one another. You know, mm-hmm. like I think you see on like Craigslist a lot the whole like must be passionate to the yeah. point where it's almost like <laughs> you know it's code for for like this is going to be a terrible experience. You know, oh for sure. Um, <laughs> that you're not going to get paid for. Um, Uh And, you know, we definitely are working with a very low budget. Sometimes we really do need people to like donate their time, but we're always very upfront about it. And we do our best to try and make that not as much of an imposition, you know, Um, you know, the film school, they're like feed people. Well, like if, if nothing else, feed them well. Um, But uh, yeah, like having the same core group of just a few people, that you really trust, that you really enjoy working with. Um, I think that's honestly the key to all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially again, I'm going to, you know, this is the most, my most recent project and easily the biggest thing I ever did is, is the series LA Macabre. It's uh, between seasons one and two, it's 15 episodes. They're all about 20 to 30 minutes a piece. So it's almost eight hours of, you know, television that was created by a crew of like four to six people at any given time, like on weekends, um, very, you know, overly ambitious endeavor. Um, and you just can't do that. It takes years. It did take years to shoot that. The mm-hmm. first season we shot in 2014, the second season took a year to write. And then we filmed it from the beginning of 2016 through the end of 2017. And then it was in post for a year and a half, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you can't make something like that if you don't have a group of really dedicated, supportive people who don't just care about the project, but also just care about you and you care Mm -hmm. about them. And like, you all want to succeed and you all enjoy working together. If it's a bad experience, nobody wants to do it or, or stick it out for that length of time. So, um, Tyler and I actually just watched the first episode of season two. We did like the recap and then we went, oh, cool. cause I was like, we, we were looking it up and I was like, this actually sounds really cool. And I was, I was digging it. I mean, like it's, it, you know, you say indie and you know, people hear that and they're like, Oh, it's not going to quality's not going to be good and whatever. But um, I was just loving the story so much. And, and I, I thought the quality was great, but um, like it, I was really impressed cause I didn't know what to expect. And I actually, I, kind of I'm gonna definitely finish it after <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um, but uh you know you talking about family and and stuff I'm curious um do you feel like your family um of filmmakers is a, a mix of a lot of different styles and people who have ideas or do you all kind of feel like you follow a similar style so that way you meld together really well um and if somebody came from a different I don't know. I don't know enough about film to really ask a, a, an intelligent <laughs> question about this. <laughs> but 
but like you know um people it's kind of like people in theater who approach shakespeare some people want to contemporize it and other people have to keep it you know right classic like is that a thing in film and if so do you like to mix it up or um i i don't know I, that's a that's a really interesting question i i i feel like the, the answer i want to give may not entirely like track with the premise but sure um i feel like you have to get everybody on the same page about what you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. you know um and and you need to like not only find people who want to make the thing that you want to make but also that you trust each other to be able to make it mm-hmm. um and like I, in my role as, as the writer and the director and just kind of the overall show creator is to find people who want to tell the same story, who kind of understand what that story is, or if they have questions, um, to make sure that, that you can communicate to them clearly what it is you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. and, and keep them excited about it and get them on board with that, you know, make sure that they trust you. Because if you if you plop a 300 page script down in front of them <laughs> and you say, this is what we're going to do for the next two years, they need to believe it's going to be worth their time, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of like getting people on the same page that way. Austin and I have been working together in some form or another for 15 years. Mm-hmm. She again is the cinematographer and she's like a one to two person team. She's usually one person. And if we can find an additional camera person, you know, to like shoot, you know, two directions at once, then, then we do that. Um, and they work for her. And sometimes it's a friend that she brings on. Sometimes she just like puts all the settings together and hands me the camera and says, don't let it shake too much. And point <laughs> it here, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, Austin and I already kind of get each other's, you know, um, the things that we want to achieve. And it's tricky when you don't have a very big budget and you're asking somebody like, Hey, your reputation lives and dies on how this looks Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. like if a shot doesn't look good I can be like well at least the performances are good or you know the editing's good or the story's compelling like I can try to let like there are so many forms of credit that I can take (laughs) right but but if something doesn't look good it reflects primarily on her you know and and to be like hey I need you to dive in on this with me for a couple of years and we don't have a lot of resources. How do you make sure that they're comfortable with the results that they're getting? You know, and also making sure like, well, if your inclination is to put it on a tripod, but I'm looking for something a little more handheld, how, how do you kind of meet in the middle on that and discuss when one is more appropriate than the other? Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that part of that is being very collaborative, being mm-hmm. open to hearing ideas and understanding, you know, um, I do believe that if you're if you're a strong director, you're open to collaboration. You know, you I think you can have auteurish tendencies where you're kind of like the figurehead and like it's your vision, but that you don't have to do that at the expense of good advice and good feedback and good input. Um, and uh, and I think a big part of that that I try to stay aware of is being open to somebody else having a better idea, being Mm -hmm. open to somebody else having a better approach to how to do it, getting better results, because ultimately it only benefits the project. So, you know, trying to have enough ego to lead a whole group and having a small enough ego to kind of acknowledge when your idea isn't the strongest one um, is kind of a balance that I, that I try to find that I, that I think 
strong directors tend to have. Um, so, and, and, and kind of going back to like the family thing, like you have to trust them and they have to trust you and right. they have to want to be there and enjoy it. When I hear these stories of like directors throwing tantrums on set, like they really, really frustrate me. Mm-hmm. I don't care how good somebody's performance is because you you gaslit them or abused them into a performance. Like that's not impressive, mm-hmm. you know, that's just abuse. And so, you know, we're not curing cancer. You're either having a good time making this thing or you're not. Um, and, and especially when you don't have any money, it's really important that you're having a good time making it. Oh yeah. And speaking as, as someone else who, who's, you know, kind of cut their teeth on the, the indie film uh, market in Colorado, I've always been interested in, you know, indie film surrounding LA. So one, we saw that you had a previous film called Vampires. Is that accessible anywhere? Because that's on Amazon Prime. And that is actually, that's Austin's documentary series. So uh, yeah, she had this idea to go down to New Orleans. um, Because she, we're both, you know, from the South, basically. Um, She's from South Carolina. And, uh, you know, we went to school in Tallahassee. It's only about four hours from New Orleans. And um, she wanted to, to like find people in that community. There's a really interesting community of people that believe that they're vampires. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a really interesting mesh of like beliefs that they have about where they get energy, you know, um, what their personal definition of vampirism is. But they're also like at that time, because we made this about 10 years ago, um, they were they were the New Orleans Vampire Association, a group of, of people that kind of have these overlapping Venn diagrams of concepts of vampirism that they that they kind of share. And then they're just really interesting people under themselves. But then they they also were trying to raise money to build a homeless shelter. And like three times a year, like I think Christmas thanksgiving and easter they would go out to jackson square in new orleans and they would feed the homeless out of their own pockets and they these were not people with money right you know if any of them were making much over minimum wage at the time i'd be surprised so you know they they really um put themselves out there for their community um in a way that that you know Austin and I thought was really fascinating. So I I mean, like you could probably have a whole conversation about vampires too. And and it's really cool. It's a, I think it's a 10 episode uh, series. It's about 10 minute episodes. Um, It was a web series. And yeah, it was Austin's thing. Like it was her concept and and she produced it. And um, she and I, and our friend Kareem and our friend Tim kind of on separate trips, different people went at different times. Um, went down there for 10 days at a time a couple of different times and spent time with that community and filmed it so that's that's actually a documentary series that we did there yeah wow that that's wow i i i'm adding it to my list after this recording (laughs) that sounds so cool it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun it makes me i i don't want to have any like prejudgments or <laughs> judgments even a terrible word um but i just mean like all i can think of right now is i wonder what that community thinks of things like what we do in the shadows and stuff that kind of makes fun of vampires they, is it... they tend to they tend to have a really great sense of humor oh good I, they yeah. tend to really Perfect. enjoy it um, i love it okay good yeah i think that they that they have 
stronger opinions or, or frustrations about how their actual community is is portrayed you sure, know sure, versus sure, sure. how they're portrayed in fiction right, you know right. um so yeah they, they you know they um uh belfazar who's one of the main characters one of the main people that we followed in that he he was a he's a voodoo priest and uh and he was i believe the head of nova at the time and he is a gay man and he introduced himself because twilight was a thing at the uh-huh. time he just walks right up and he's like i'm a gay voodoo vampire so my friends call me sparkles to prove that and like, <laughs> that was that was his joke you know yeah. and so, um really sweet you know interesting man uh and he was a lot of fun to be around um and yeah, they've obviously got a sense of humor about it. Like at that time, like Twilight was the thing mm-hmm, and they were mm-hmm. always being like, and we don't sparkle, you know, yeah, but yeah. in like a joking, you know, uh, lighthearted way. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you, um, do you find yourself leaning more towards uh documentary filmmaking right now or it just you're, that's your general taste or um, are you hoping to kind of, put more work into either features or TV or whatever. Um, because even I feel like LA Macabre is um, shot, even though it's not a documentary series or even a mockumentary, it's the way uh, it's shot. It kind of feels a little bit like it is. Um, right. And uh, so I'm just curious, like, do, do you feel like that that's your natural film place or are you kind of? Um, you know, not really, we, uh, okay. but I, I totally understand how, how we kind of play that way. Um, I do a lot of documentary editing mm-hmm. and I do enjoy documentary filmmaking, but, um, but no, I, I like to write and direct fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to consume nonfiction. I mm-hmm. mostly read nonfiction, you know, um, but I, but I like to write, you know, fictional stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but L.A. Macabre was was kind of um, it, it was kind of influenced by having read Helter Skelter and being mm. really really creeped out by that mm-hmm. and wanting to take aspects of that book without doing a Manson Family thing, you know, without right. doing a Manson Family adaptation or movie. Um, just wanted to take things that they had done and kind of co-opt them and put them in a different sandbox and play with them in a different way. Um, but but. Uh, the documentary style of L.A. Macabre in particular, because the first three episodes, and I know you, I know you skipped them to to watch the recap and all that, but like yeah. the first three episodes are pretending to be documentary, real, you know, like they don't okay. break character. They're all from the camera's point of view. And then at season two, the story had expanded so much that it actually only made sense to stop trying to find a reason that the cam the characters would pick up a camera. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to just break out of that and start telling a single camera drama narrative mm-hmm. and we didn't we didn't want that to be overly jarring yeah so um what you'll see as you as you finish season two is you'll actually see the style kind of become more traditional gradually over time and you'll see the scope expand and the storylines expand but but we very intentionally, like the first two or three shots or scenes of the episode that you saw. Yeah. One was, you know, found footage camera, you know. Right. They became a screen capture, you know. Um, it became another found footage thing. And then the very first time we break out of that after three or four scenes, 
it's a single camera handheld shot that is not held by a character. It's just us switching styles. But hopefully it continues to feel fluid because you're still getting that kind of naturalistic um, camera movement. And you're also getting naturalistic performances because they're not being edited. It's just a one -er. Right, Um, right. Which is very much how the first season plays. You know, it's very much, it's a lot of oneers because it's found footage. And so we kind of wanted to keep leaning into oneers when there were conversations. We wanted the actors to be able to step on each other's dialogue naturally and, and not have to worry about the kind of very like hard to do properly, but like very impressive, like natural pause that actors can build into their performances for the editor. It's, it's a real skill. Um, but we, you know, we kind of wanted to toggle in and out of when they had to do that. So they're at the beginning of the scene, it would be like, we're running two cameras. You can talk over each other, mm-hmm. you know, or it'd be like, sorry guys, we're only running one camera and we're going to do coverage and turn around and do mm-hmm. somebody else's coverage. So don't interrupt each other. Don't step on each other, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, you know, it was definitely trying to maintain the naturalism of season one, um, even though we had switched gears into a more traditional filmmaking style, we kind of wanted that to feel seamless and not mm-hmm, jarring mm-hmm. and not like we had just completely switched, you know, in a way that, that was distracting. So, Or uh, for, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> for uh, for L.A. Macabre, you had mentioned, you know, like, writing a 300 page document and and laying that out did you go the true detective route and write out the entire season or did you start with the, the pilot kind of branch off from there uh wrote the whole season it took oh about a God. year um the first season was only about 100 pages it was about you know it was a feature length you know divided into 10 or 11 episodes you know the first season was like a web series mm-hmm. you know um, but it was fun to kind of learn how to do that structure um and I actually learned more of that structure in editing when I had friends giving me really good notes about like where to put cliffhangers and you know when when we would cut to the opening um title sequence in in season one realizing that you could do that after the opening scene would really kind of give you a nice punctuation and turn it into a cold open that can be kind of fun or snarky or really creepy um so taking all of that experience and kind of new information about about serialized storytelling um tried to apply it to season two and yeah season two really was a just a 300 page you know script um with with 12 episodes um originally 13 and i think like on one of the rewrites i went back and combined a couple of the episodes Mm -hmm. to get it down a bit but um but yeah, it, it was this massive, like massively stupidly big, you know. Um, How long? Did, so you said it took you a year. How yeah. about like, what was your average of, um, I'm just so fascinated by the writing process. Um, were it, was it like all day, every day, just kind of getting it out? Or did you kind of go through big chunks of I'm stuck here? A uh, little of column A, a little of column yeah. B. You know, it, it just kind of, you know, try and get up in the morning. I'm more of a morning writer. So try to get up and like go find a coffee shop mm-hmm. um, and, and sit there until like, you know, noon and, and do my two or three hours for the day. Um, and I just have like a little mental toolkit of like writing rituals that I find helpful that either help me that I discovered or that somebody else kind of gave me as advice. And, you know, some of them were like, stop for the day when you know what happens next. Mm. Um, 
because when you wake up in the morning and you go back to it, you're going to be able to keep writing as opposed mm-hmm. to staring at a blank page or a blank scene. You know, um, I had an, I had a roommate um, for a couple of years who's a very successful screenwriter now. And one of the things that he used to, he could go through 20, 30 pages a day, you know, like on average, he just, it was wow. such a discipline for him. But I think he wrote six screenplays in a year once and he would, outline for a month and write for the month and then outline for a month and write for a month. And I asked him why he did it. And he was just like, well, you know, and this is not cynical at all. It was just him being pragmatic. He was like, I was just kind of taking the magic out of it. You know, like not that writing will not be magical for him, but like he was getting to a place where he could do it as a discipline, as a muscle that he'd built up, mm-hmm. you know, so that when a studio exec comes along and says, we need a page one rewrite, you know, he can do it. Mm. Um, and he can do it. He was getting hired and flown places to do these types of things, you know, um, while we were living in like a really crummy little apartment together. <laughs> um, so he, um, he really did turn it into that. But at one point, one of the pieces of advice he just threw out was, uh, you know, two pages a day, no matter what, Yeah. you know, and you'll have a script in like five, six weeks, no mm-hmm. matter what, mm-hmm. you know, and it does, uh, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that hard if you don't let it be that hard. And I think a lot of people really let feature screenwriting and feature filmmaking intimidate them more than they need to. Mm. Particularly, I, you know, like I get it if you've never made a film or you've never written a screenplay. I understand why that would be intimidating. But what I hear it from a lot are people who are short filmmakers or short screenplay writers. And they really get intimidated by like this 20 page thing or this 10 page thing that they've done this 10 minute movie that they've done that they they just can't imagine doing it for 100 pages and to me it's like it's it's not actually that much harder you know it's just more of the same exercise you know um (laughs) So, um, yeah, if you can write a 10 page script and tell a story, you can write a hundred page script and tell a story, you know, it's just a matter of not psyching yourself out. And if you can spend a couple of days or a week putting a 10 minute film into production, all you have to do is plan more days for that. The (laughs) obstacles are really financial, you know, and logistical, but don't let them be psychological, you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's I think it's pretty doable you know it's just not letting yourself talk yourself out of it or be intimidated by it yeah it's like like taking that dive no matter what happens just just do it try it out and uh yeah. are you are you working anything or are you working on anything right now for yourself whether it's writing or playing another project um I kind of um I got a writing manager at the beginning of last year um awesome. which was nice uh, after we finished LA Macabre, I kind of decided to pivot to moving away from editing as a career and moving into trying to become a filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, and COVID obviously throws a wrench into that. And, you know, it was um not, not, I wouldn't say it wasn't a big productive year in terms of like changing careers, but it was a productive year um, in terms of building a foundation. Um, I, I had a few screenplays that I got to do a lot of rewrites on um, that I wouldn't have had time for otherwise. So that was helpful at the beginning of the year. 
Um, and I wrote a couple of screenplays back to back early 2019, and I got to spend time revising those. And then I spent a lot of time last year, 2020, um, like entering them into a lot of different script competitions mm. and kind of, it was fun because like I had a couple that would place fairly often. And then every once in a while, one of the other ones would like do really well. Um, and all of those things were great ammunition for my manager to be able to, you know, like hit up a production company and be like, well, you know, uh, Dan and, and John, my, uh, my co-writer on one of the screenplays, um, like they won Scream Fest with this screenplay. So like, oh, okay, it gets easier to get production companies to read it, you know, or whatever. So that's um, that's been helpful. Um, I was almost in production on an L.A. Macabre spinoff movie at the Ooh. beginning of last year. Um, it would have actually like it would have it's much more overtly horror than L.A. Macabre is. Mm. You know, L.A. Macabre has some creepy you know stuff and some horror elements but it's more of a mystery thriller yeah. you know um and this movie would have been like taking a character who you haven't met yet but you will in season two and turning them into the the slasher villain that they were obviously always meant to be <laughs> um, and kind of like uh and, and like telling that story in a parallel way that that kind of complements seasons one and two without contradicting them or without derailing them and you don't need the movie to understand the show and you don't need the show to understand the movie but if you do there's a lot of easter eggs yeah um so uh got really close to that and then you know kind of a double punch of sag raising their ultra low budget rates mm. which put it financially out of reach um for a, for a time hopefully we'll find more support and be able to do that and also that was kind of a blessing in disguise because if we had gone into production, we would have tried to go into production right into COVID oh, no. and, and we would have gotten shut down and we had to stop anyway, just to be safe. And, you know, um, even now I don't think people should really be in production, you know, yeah. like it's just not, I, I, I think it's kind of silly that, that um, LA in particular is still trying to film because we're, definitely an epicenter right now yeah um, so whoever whoever got us you know labeled essential workers earned their lobbying paycheck. <laughs> they really they re like they really shouldn't be in production right yeah now. Um, yeah and so uh so hopefully like you know in, in time that opportunity will will sort itself out because i would like to uh make that film but I would also like to find funding for like one of these other screenplays that mm -hmm. that we had going through. Um, and I would like to make season three of L.A. Macabre because it was always supposed to be a three season arc. Mm. Um, and uh, season two was we were very proud of it. But that was a five year journey from writing it, from fundraising and writing it to releasing it, you know, and it was like a three ish year journey just making it you know, right. writing and post and all that aggregate three-ish years or so. And that's a lot when you've only got a four to six person crew and mm -hmm. like a two to three person post team, you know, um, and you, you're doing $100,000 worth of editing work for free, you know, yeah. because, <laughs> you, you know, you don't have $100,000 to pay anyone else or mm -hmm. yourself, you know. Um, 
So uh, while I'm definitely all for passion projects and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to um, get paid to make the next LA macabre season necessarily. I would like to be able to pay the cast and crew sure. appropriately, you know, because season two is like, again, it took two years because, you know, you can't afford to have somebody prioritize you. Mm-hmm. And, and we understand that. Like if you get another audition or you book a commercial or you get another um, cinematography gig, they're paying you better than us, then yeah, we're going to, we're going to have to postpone, you know, or work around that schedule. And that ends up taking a lot longer than, you know, paying people well enough to want to just set aside two to three months of their time Mm -hmm. and just knock it all out at once. Mm -hmm. But that's an incredibly expensive proposition, not just in terms of persuading them to set their time aside, but also to have all of the locations lined up to have all of the picture vehicles, to have the crew there, to have um, all of those logistics work out. One of the things that made season two cheap was like, you know, okay, we found, we found the police station set. We're going to go film there for a week. And then we're going to like regroup for a month or two. And Mm -hmm. then we'll have the diner and we'll shoot Mm -hmm. all the scenes for the diner, you know, and like, I've gotten a couple paychecks since then, or, you know, so uh it's just um it's cheaper you know time money quality pick two you take two years it can be cheaper yeah yeah yeah. three months you need a lot more money to smooth that out what about something uh you know that we had movies like host come out last year you know it was all done through through zoom have you uh do you have any ideas in the pipeline that could utilize something that is more socially uh distanced or do you guys feel like you just want to wait for a little bit because i know it's, it's almost like um you know you get the itch to create something uh if you can't yeah. do it for a little bit so is there anything like that that you'd want to do uh, no not yet if something like that occurred to me that would be fun um mm-hmm. uh but not at the moment no um I, I, I feel like season one of LA Macabre might've been great for something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but by the time we got to season two, we kind of had this like, well, we, we can do anything, you know, kind of uh, approach to it of like, we're going to bite off way more than we can chew. And we're mm-hmm. just going to chew, chew for a couple of years straight, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't have anything like that in mind. You know, who knows? Like I could like saunter back to my room after this, you know, interview and be like, you know, it'd be really cool. Yeah, but as it stands right now, no, um, the, the projects that I want to make are, are a little more ambitious, even even as an indie thing, you know, um, they, you know, locations and and probably a dozen people or so who might have to quarantine together or whatever, if we were going to try and do it in COVID. And again, I don't know how I would feel about that. Mm-hmm. I would have to be like really comfortable with the notion that like we'd all been tested and mm-hmm. we're going to shoot it all in three or four weeks and we're not going to break the bubble. And, and that doesn't seem to, the success ratio of that seems to still be kind of wonky anyway. Um, so sure. uh, yeah, I, I, part of me just kind of wants to wait it out because we, um, you know, even though I was writing earlier in the year, uh, I, I stopped, I chose to stop writing around like June, honestly, Mm -hmm. around like around, you know, George Floyd and and that, Mm -hmm. that time, 
it just didn't feel important to be mm-hmm. sitting in my chair and like writing a screenplay. And, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to be tuned into something that felt more important than that um, at the time. And I think that there's a lot to be said for cutting yourself a break in this time, you know, um, and not, I mean, like if you, if you want to be productive and you can be productive and that gives you energy, you know, by all means go for it. Nobody should be shamed out of their productivity, but nobody should be shamed into it either. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like nobody should have to come out of this with a quarantine screenplay. Um, And so I just kind of, you know, was really productive at the beginning of COVID. And then I decided after that, that I was not going to write unless I really felt like it. And Mm -hmm. so I haven't really been writing, but it has been nice kind of keeping tabs on this three or four screenplays that I've got kind of making moves here and there. So, yeah. And I'm curious about those. Um, you, you know, you mentioned early on that you've always kind of been a horror fan and are all of your screenplays kind of thriller, horror, you know, mystery the, stuff right now? Yeah. At the moment they are, which is, you know, funny because um, it's not always the case. Yeah. My first, fe- my first feature was not uh, a genre film in that way. Like there was a mystery to it, but it wasn't Right. horror or a thriller it was just a high school drama um and right now yeah they are all kind of horror screenplays or like a sci-fi pilot which is okay fun. um and uh, and that is a genre that i really enjoy um but i'm oh like i i enjoy other things too yeah, and so yeah. if another idea occurs to me I would be happy to kind of go down that road so. is there a genre that is like so out of your wheelhouse you wouldn't even know where to begin to if somebody was like can you write me this <laughs> um I I don't say this pejoratively I don't think I would be particularly good at a, like a rom-com uh-huh. um <laughs> you know um I don't think I would be particularly good at like a heartwarming a heartwarming family film yeah um, lifetime hallmark not for you <laughs> yeah yeah or even just like you know like not to pick on those too much because like you know people love them and they have their yeah values, oh yeah like um but even just like a really good one like i wouldn't make a good pixar film for example okay yeah you know um i i just uh that's a a type of um i don't know conceptual exploration moral exploration that I'm not as interested mm-hmm. in um mm-hmm. and so uh yeah I, I enjoy watching the, those films but mm-hmm. um but I probably wouldn't be very good at them and I wouldn't be particularly good at a comedy um I like I I think it's important to put comedy into your script pretty yeah. much no matter what it is yeah. um I, I feel like the first film that I made um the first feature I made was a very dour exercise. It's like very self-serious, you know, um, and, and there are ways in which I think it succeeds and ways in which I think it doesn't succeed. But the one thing about it that I realized, one of the many things I realized later was like, it doesn't have a sense of humor and it could have really used one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it wouldn't have diminished the gravity of the other things in it or, or the overall ideas or whatever. And so LA Macabre kind of has a wicked sense of humor sometimes because I've got kind of a weird sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the actors uh, were kind of picking on me because they were like, you know, you don't make us run lines or rehearse for the dramatic scenes, but like you make us run the comedic beats with you. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, they have to be a very particular way yeah, or they're not going to land because my sense of humor is very strange. Yeah. You know? yeah. 
Um, but it is just as important to me that when people watch Ellie and the Cobb, that they laugh at the right moments as a, and, and that they like jump at the right moments right. or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you could always end up being, you know, the, uh, the Mike Flanagan of Pixar in 10 years. You never know. Oh, it, could, it could happen. <laughs> Things could I mean, change. If, if I had to like pick somebody's career that I would love to, to have, you know, I, I really would love Mike Flanagan's career, you know, um, yeah. start out giving him a half million or a million dollars to make something. And, you know, every time he, he shows you that that was a good plan, give him a little bit more until mm-hmm. he's, until he's your go-to, you know? Um, I also just aesthetically really like that he's great at horror, but he's also great at drama. Um, oh, yeah. And, you, you know, he, he kind of manages to, he has a style that works really well. Like if you look at Haunting of Hill House, you know, um, of something that seems very him, very unique to him, but that he knows when to let something be poignant and, um, and serious and, and not have to, you know, um, not always have to like pull the rug out from under you. Like, you know, that there's value in something being heartfelt as well. Um, which is like, so I really like his work. The funny thing is, I don't think I love any single thing he's ever done. Mm. I just really like most of what he's done. You know, like I just, as a whole, I'm really impressed with him batting like a 750, 800, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen him hit a home run, but he gets to third all the time. And I'm really impressed with that. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I, I see I see a lot of those values um, just from watching L.A. McCobb and, and looking back at, you know, some of the advertisements, advertisements in your work, just the the um, like creative aesthetic to it and how much care you put into the projects, especially watching the first episode. You know, it, it is a, a character drama with these thriller and mystery bits spread throughout. And I just got a very Mike Flanagan feel for it like I could see him making you know more and more and more of these awesome projects and then you know eventually she and I are going to be you know like having coffee going hey have you heard Dan's making that new movie <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> like, what's happening now we he won't get him back be on, on the, the podcast show. again either yeah. his manager said f off no, you know we no, got blocked <laughs> Man, oh. if, that, if, if that comes true, I will absolutely come back on the podcast yeah. just for you putting it out there. Um, yeah, it, yeah. I, I would love that career. I just, I believe the characters are so incredibly important um, and, and caring about them and their journey. Um, one thing that a friend of mine said to me once that I thought was really good was they don't have to be likable. They just have to be interesting. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I do, it does really help if you like a character and you invest. Let's not let's not pretend it doesn't but um but some people do get hung up on likability as as like a necessary character trait um and i don't think that's always necessary um but but it does particularly with la macabre like one of the nicest compliments we get is that people have favorite characters and like people that they're rooting for Mm -hmm. um and people that they're suspicious of and Mm -hmm. that they're not and and um they have theories on like who's actually pulling the strings um and so the idea that people invest in different ways and have different favorite characters i think is a testament to really the the actors because they're incredible but um but it is a nice um validation of that effort because if you don't care about them why are you going to watch them for six more hours Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. um You've touched on it a little bit, but I'm actually really curious. What is it like for you to 
be the screenwriter, the director, and then I'm assuming you're also doing the majority of the editing and whatnot, just because that's what you do. Um, <laughs> uh, do you prefer that because you kind of have a, a fair amount of control over it all? Or are you hopeful that in future projects, like your screenplay is going to get taken and somebody else is going to direct it, and you kind of get to just be the writer? Um, my old, I mean, for, um, first of all, shout out to Art O'Leary and Kareem Hanawi, who each co-edited a single episode of L.A. Macabre for awesome. me. Um, they, they came in because editing 12 episodes of that show alone mm -hmm. was just a lot. And they, they you know, Art co-edited episode seven and Kareem co-edited episode eight um, and just kind of helped lighten the load a bit. And they did really great work. Um, but uh I really, I do enjoy being a part of all three of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, again, it goes back to my like thing about those being the three intersections of storytelling mm -hmm. and film. Mm -hmm. And I do like having my hands in every part of refining the story. Right. My ultimate career goal is to be a writer director. Okay. Um, there are things that I've written that I would happily sell and let somebody else direct. Um, but there are things that I've written that I would never let somebody mm -hmm, else direct. Mm -hmm. Um, and I haven't read anything yet that somebody else has done that I wanted to direct, mm -hmm. which is not to say that I haven't read some great scripts from people. I, they're wonderful, but, uh, when I read them, I don't think about how I would direct them or what I would bring to them. Yeah. I, you know, they just, um, even if they're asking for notes, it doesn't occur to me to be like, here's how I would shoot this and here's how I would direct this. Um, so my director brain is very specifically tied to my writer brain. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I would happily hire another editor mm -hmm. to like take the editing process over because I would still be in the room a lot and like we'd be collaborating and I would have very editor-based opinions on how you do particular things. Um, but you know, as a technical skill, I would I would love to hand mm -hmm. that off to somebody else mm -hmm. who deals with it, and then sure. just kind of come in and 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 work with them after the fact. Um, but yeah, so so some things I would sell. Uh, it's not that I wouldn't be happy being hired to direct. Um, I directed several episodes of like a comedy web series years ago, um, or a like a YouTube comedy mm -hmm. show. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't fictional. It was like a review show day to day, but, um, you know, that was a fun experience, but, but I haven't read, nobody's handed me a horror screenplay right. or like a drama yet where I've been like that. Yeah. I, I'm the, I'm the person for that job. Right. You know? Right. So is there a, uh, is there a particular movie you've seen recently that you wish you could have directed? I know you said, you know, you've read scripts or you thought, ah, I just, eh, it's not for me, but is there something you saw and you thought, wow, I think I could pull that off. Wow. Oh, wow. Man, that's a really interesting question. Um, probably not. Like there, there are movies that, that maybe not recently, there are movies that I've seen that I love that I wish I had, you know, that I wish I had thought of, and mm -hmm. I wish I had made, <laughs> you know, um, that I really admire. Um, but for the like like I but for the most part I feel that this the stories I tell are really specific 
because my kind of overriding desire as a filmmaker is to tell stories that I wish somebody had made for me. Um, and so that's, that's what I, you know, that's what I think is fun about LA Macabre is I don't know any other shows that do this, you know, um, yeah. not, not calling it the most unique thing ever made, but like this story, this world, this sandbox, this like LA history thing with this cult thing and this like desert noir thriller thing, like, these are all like check boxes of things I love and I can't go watch another show that's going to do them for me. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of my driving thing. I really love Zodiac is, is my, one of my favorite movies. I think that's Fincher's best movie still. Um, uh, and you know, and, and I, I think, um, what's the, the series, uh, Mindhunter? Thank you. Yes, Mindhunter. Oh, I think Mindhunter is so great. Good. Almost like it's a feel like a. It almost feels like a spinoff of that yeah. universe in yeah. a way. Um, really love Mindhunter. No Country for Old Men. I just think is phenomenal. Um, uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I think is oh a great movie. Um, Memento was a big one, but I actually think Chris Nolan's best movie to date is still The Prestige. Oh, um, buddy. Thank you. So, <laughs> All right, thank I'm going to sign off right now and I'll let you guys just bro out for the My next two hours. My webcam is steaming up over here. You say all the right things. Those are, those are the recent ones. I actually love a lot of like 70s cinema. Interesting. Um, like 70s American cinema. And I think that some of those classics you can tick off are like the obvious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, The, the Godfather, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, I love... Uh, a friend of mine turned me on to this a couple of years ago and I was embarrassed that I hadn't gotten to it sooner, but you know, wages of fear is great, but I, I think I might actually prefer sorcerer. If you've seen mm-hmm. William Friedkin's remake, yeah. it's it, technically, he's like, it's not a remake. I adapted the book. It's the same book, but I didn't remake wages of fear. I did. I did sorcerer. Um, <laughs> and, and sorcerer is really great. Um, really bleak, but really great. And I watch it and I still don't know how the hell, they did some of this stuff in like 1976. I don't know how they did some of these things. Um, but uh, like in terms of like studs or effects or whatever yeah. they're doing, I don't know how they did it. Um, also because that movie is kind of like William, again, William Friedkin, fairly abusive to his cast and crew, not a fan of that behavior, but um, that was kind of his apocalypse now where he just got so drunk on on his vision and his his endless budget to achieve it. That the story is, and actually it's not a story, he, he acknowledges this. He took them back to South America to do inserts inside the cab of a vehicle. Like he just, you know, like they filmed it in South America, but then he was like, yeah, we have to get like the gear shifting and stuff. We're going back. And it's oh like, my God. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, like it, the results of the movie are incredible, but not because of that. You know, right, not, right. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, a lot of like 70s paranoia thrillers and, and stuff that I really enjoy. Day of the Jackal, Ooh, you know, um, stuff like those procedural quiet, not particularly pushed along by the score. Um, are, are, I have to like correct and say, like, our composer in season two is incredible, Mike Meehan. I've been working with him for 10 or 12 years now. Um, and I love him so much, but even we had to figure out how to let the score gradually creep into the show because season one didn't have a score. So like now this universe has music. How do we do that? Um, 
and and he he nailed it. He's a wonderful um, composer and collaborator, and one man banding it over there as well. You know, like like the rest of us. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he was great. But I, I love like Day of the Jackal or um, No Country for Old Men in particular. Uh, no Country for Old Men doesn't have a score. Yeah, and I don't think people notice that. Mm. You know, that's one of the most tense movies of like the last 20 years and it doesn't use music. You know, it's all sound design and atmosphere. So I love that. I'm not confident or strong enough to do it, but <laughs> but I, I keep trying, you know. <laughs> I try and then I end up calling Mike. Um, but, uh, hey, buddy, really, bail me out. <laughs> yeah, but I really, but I really admire that, um, you know, because it makes you think about when you do and don't need a score. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You make, it, it's a conscientious decision to not lean on it and, and try to let it save you all the time, you know? So yeah. Big fan of sound design for that reason. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you... I do a lot of the sound design in editing. Okay, um, cool. Oh, okay. I just wanted to ask that. Yeah, um, building like transitions and, and things around the sound design of something. Um, so we'll see how much we actually need music, you know, but yeah. when we do need it, Mike swoops in. He's great. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, what, what do you like to do outside of, outside of filmmaking? You know, we, we always need that sort of yeah. reprieve to get away from it. So what, what are some things you like, I mean, you have, you have two puppers over there, so I'm sure. <laughs> top of the, the list. Producers. Yeah. We, we, call them, we call them the producers. I love um, it. Uh, you know, I have to be honest. It took me a while to find a balance outside of it because I was doing it to pay the bills and then I was doing it in my own time. Mm-hmm. And when you make something like LA Macabre where it takes years of your life and all of your time and there's only a handful of people doing it with you, um, it kind of does consume every part of your life. Um, and I, I think that even now, um, that was a big part of like not making myself right this year, mm-hmm. you know, just read a book, go for a walk, exercise. I like to cook a lot, actually. I'm not a great cook, but I, in the last couple of years in particular, I realized that when I had to stop and cook myself a meal and take an hour to like chop up everything and, you know, it could like actually, I don't want to say from scratch, but like from ingredients mm-hmm. rather than like putting something in a microwave. Um, and it made me think about the process of cooking something hmm. and I wasn't able to obsess over the thing I was working on the movie I was doing or the show I was doing like I had to focus on chopping up these bell peppers you know mm-hmm. and, um, so uh, that is still something I'm figuring out you know um, as I go and and uh, I'm, I think I'm getting good at not having to always be working on something to feel my own identity as a person. Cause I think that that was a problem for me for a while. Yeah. Um, I, you, you start to um, just identify yourself to yourself and to others as the guy who's making LA macabre or the guy who's working on vampires or, you know, the guy who's writing the screenplay um, and not say like, this is who I am outside of all these things. Um, and so that's, that's a thing that I'm still trying to figure out you Mm -hmm. know but I'm somebody who likes to jog and cook and spend time with my dogs and uh I'd like to travel more so you know 
are you um i mean it sounds like it because you just listed a whole bunch of movies but you know tyler is definitely the movie and tv buff in this household and um <laughs> it's it's really funny because um uh i'm terrible at keeping up and is but is that something you feel like you do a just because it's fun but b you uh, you always get ideas from the stuff you watch or you kind of can take bits and pieces or so i think it's a little bit of all of those yeah i will I will say that um, a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends are much better at keeping up with and consuming media than I am. They okay. they really stay on the cusp of like what show is out, you know, um, what what you should see this movie, this horror movie that like I haven't seen. Host, I'm aware of it, and I hear it's really good, um, and and I would like to watch it. I just haven't watched it yet, and and some of that is um, I think that television and film over the last decade or so have really tested how people's consumption habits have really changed and like what their preferences are. And sometimes I find myself leaning toward looking for a good show rather than looking for a good movie. And then I'd yeah. say in the last year or so, I've, because of COVID, my, my kind of consumption diet for media has become more about film I don't want to invest over a long period of time. I, I, you know, I'll put on the great British baking show because that's like <laughs> therapy, you know, um, like that's just so pleasant. I feel like if we had all just from, you know, from like the election through to the inauguration, if we had all just sat by ourselves <laughs> and just watched the great British baking show, yep. and, you know, just binged it, we would have come out the side, just a better nation, yep. you know? Um, but uh you know, uh, like I'll watch that, but like I found myself this year in particular watching a lot of old movies, well, not super old, but like old from my childhood mm -hmm. that I hadn't watched in 10 years or five years or 20 years. And, you know, some of it was reevaluating what I what drew me to them initially or what about them influenced me now. And some of it was just like purely comfort food and not wanting to be challenged. You know, it's like. I already know this is great. So I'm just going to watch this because I know exactly what I'm going to get, but it's been such a long time since I've seen it that it'll probably be a bit fresh, you know, or like, I know this isn't good, but I know it's fun. Uh -huh. I, I was just going to ask. Yeah. You got to <laughs> tell there, us is now. Is there a movie that you know <laughs> oh, is just terrible from the, your childhood, but you love it anyway? Oh, wow, man. That's a good question. Um, from my childhood. I don't know. I, I will say that recently, though, and I did this at the beginning of COVID, I had like friends that we would call and talk to each other on speakerphone and watch movies together. Um, I had everybody like the, the two or three friends who were on the call. We watched The Frighteners um, yes. because I think that The Frighteners is sadly forgotten and deeply underrated. And it was a huge influence on me because I was like 14 when that came out, 13 when that came out. And like it really did influence like there's some great twists in it. There's some emotional stuff. It's very clever. It's kind of nonstop. It's a little you know, rewatching it. There were a couple of scenes where I was like, that's a problem. Like, <laughs> like, like socially, that's a problem, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, <laughs> that's not good. Um, and so now like I find myself kind of like telling people like you should watch the Frighteners, but you need to like be aware 
that there's like one or two scenes that I'm not endorsing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like when you, I've, I've read the book It twice. It's one of only two books I've ever read twice. Wow. But there's definitely a page and a half I would cut out if I could, and we know what it is. And so like, you know, um, so the Frighteners is probably like that. I don't think the Frighteners is a bad movie though. I I think it's um a pretty a pretty fun mm-hmm. ride. Um, but it is imperfect, and in in an at least one moment, it's fairly problematic. Um, but uh, but you know, I I think that that you can kind of acknowledge these things and yeah. make your own decision about your comfort level with them. There's no right or wrong answer as to how offended you are or uncomfortable you are with something, I think, right. in, in these moments. But, um, you know, you watch it and you say that wasn't for me, you know, or it was. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I guess The Frighteners is up there. One that always kind of holds together for me every time I watch it, and I expect it not to, and then it does, is Carlito's Way. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> which is do you is like if you were to like turn your camera around would like all of these be on the wall is that like, no 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 i, uh, <laughs> I have a frighteners standout right over there uh, i was gonna say it, no it's um i don't surprisingly i don't own a whole lot um i have a stack of maybe i don't know 30 or 40 movies that that i'll i'll watch but uh no like the same points you're getting especially carlito's way you know something i haven't seen in years but i do remember just being a couple of years ago saying i don't i don't it's i enjoy it uh, yeah. i'm gonna yeah. be careful of who i recommend this to <laughs> am I, yeah like i'm re- am i ready to vouch for this or not and yeah. then you go in for the rewatch and you're like yeah i'm still ready to vouch for uh-huh. that one you know yep. um i will say years ago seven and zodiac were like neck and neck for me as my favorite venture film and, and seven i feel i still think is one of the best films of that genre ever made but actually as i got older I, you know zodiac took the lead for all sorts of reasons. It's a more mature work. It's a more interesting work. It's a more important work because it's actually more accurate than the book it's based on. Mm. Um, but, um, but in addition to that, I love seven. I think aesthetically it's incredible and it's, and it's very clever. Um, but I watch it now and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I love Brad Pitt, but not in this. Um, <laughs> he's not as good in this as, as he is in a lot of other things. Like yeah. he, feel, he feels a little at sea. Um, and um, and that's weird because I actually go to bat for him as an actor who makes really interesting choices and really interesting films. Like even if his performance isn't the best part of it, I love his taste. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, I watch that one sometimes and I'm like, oh, you're, you weren't ready. Um, mm. You're not bad, but you're not good. <laughs> and uh, and and some of that's the writing. I, yeah. I also think that yeah. his character doesn't deliver as much to the story or to the circumstances as I would like if I were writing it. You know, it's it's pretty much always Somerset, kind of like finding the next step, getting the next thing. You know, and then Brad Pitt kicks a door and bribes someone, and that's kind of it. And like, yeah. I feel like. <laughs> I feel like if Brad Pitt had maybe done moves like that two or three more times and had them pay off, then these two characters would be balancing each other out in a fascinating way. But it really is just kind of Somerset kind of every step of the way, you know, figuring out the next logical way to deal with this. Um, So I don't know. Uh, So, so seven is one that's like always going to be a favorite, but did kind of dip a little bit for mm-hmm. me yeah. in recent rewatches, you know. Mm-hmm. What what about uh, you know, uh, either a writer, director, film that 
that really inspired you as a filmmaker, you know, from, from a young age to, to make you gain this amount of interest in it? Is there any particular example? Oh man, probably a few. Um, I will say uh, the, the two that I can point to, and you'll probably see how editing figures into them pretty quickly. Um, I think Memento really changed the way I thought about storytelling. Um, and, and like at an indie level, you know, realizing that it doesn't all have to be the Fast and the Furious, you know, like <laughs> that, that like you can find a couple of interesting characters and choose to tell a really interesting story and choose to tell it in a really interesting way. And you don't actually need a lot of resources. Um, and I think Memento was like $5 million, but they easily could have made it for five grand, you know, like, oh, yeah. um, not that I think that they overspent, like the polish is there and the performances are there and I'm glad they had that support. But if I had written Memento, I would have figured out a way to shoot that with my friends and it would probably still be a good movie because it's such a good script, you know? Um, I'd say another one is, um, I mean, Seven was one that I watched a lot, but I think the reason that I really started paying attention to editing was JFK, mm. um, which is pretty well forgotten and underappreciated. Yeah. And when I was younger, that movie was like, it blew my mind and I was all in on the conspiracy of it, you know? <laughs> um, I'm not so much anymore. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know where I sit on like the Kennedy assassination. I've read different things that are all very interesting. Mm -hmm. I've read very compelling arguments for why it was just Oswald, you know? And so I don't really know where I stand on that anymore, but in a vacuum, if you're ready for a paranoia thriller, whether you want to take it seriously or not, um, JFK is a monument to filmmaking. Like it is, uh, it, that is, as my friend Sean put it really well, like that's the movie that Oliver Stone had to offer the world. Um, mm. and, uh, and it is a monument to editing. Mm. It is incredible editing. The, the sequences, the montages, the, 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 the theatrical cut, you don't have to bother with the director's cut, but like um, the, the, the way that they give you information and also the use of sound design in the editing, how it obviously had to be a part of those edits for it to be effective, you know, was like a weird thing to be thinking about at like 17 years old in high school, you know? And so I would say that was probably a really big influence for me. Wow. Very cool. I gotta rewatch that. <laughs> I know, I've never seen it now, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you, you have to get past all of all of Kevin Costner being like, you can't trust the government. You really have to like be ready for that. You know, yeah. when I was like 17 and I didn't really pay attention to politics, I didn't really understand. This just made perfect sense to me as like, yeah, I mean, if they're going to kill the president, I wouldn't trust them either. You know, um, military industrial complex. It was just really like, you know, <laughs> the cliff notes of like 60s conspiracy theories. Right. And I was, I was there for it. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can get past some of that silliness, um, it is just at a filmmaking level, a really impressive piece of art. Okay. Do you have uh, what we like to call a party story from uh, your time, uh, you know, either work, working on any of your, your films um, or documentaries or anything um, that uh, I, a big part of this podcast is um, we have a lot of listeners who are not in the industry in any form whatsoever. And so they don't really understand what our jobs can entail. And so mm. for us, it's like, 
of course this would happen but like if you tell it at a party people would be like what oh man i mean especially with that like we have probably those for all of our projects like numerous of uh, like the king of vampires stole my cell phone case when we were making vampires um <laughs> And Just that was because? the first night I ever got so drunk that I vomited. Oh, and then man. At 3 a.m., I'm walking home with like $4,000 worth of equipment on me. And every time I came around a corner, it was the French Quarter. And it's like I was alone, it was fine. But when somebody else would come around the corner, instead of like pushing myself along the brick wall, I would like stand up really straight and sober and like walk really intimidating until they took the next corner and like fall against the wall. Oh, my God. And, and then I got propositioned by by a sex worker, like, not far from the hotel and i was so drunk that i like and so surprised that i laughed and i still feel bad about that to this day Aww. because like yep. I, I i feel bad about it like i legitimately don't feel good <laughs> about like having laughed i was just drunk and i didn't know that they actually said hey baby are you looking for a good time like i thought that was a movie thing <laughs> i would absolutely um, laugh too <laughs> so i felt i felt bad like immediately but i you know she took it like a champ and kept walking and i just you know but um yeah like so like that was one that's not even my favorite but like um i you know like we had so little money on la macabre i stood in my kitchen for three days and made crock pot meals for the entire cast and crew to freeze for a week's worth of shooting. So I made like wow. 24 crock pot meals for about $400 because wow. we couldn't afford the six to $8,000 worth of catering or right. per diems that we would have needed. Right. You know? Um, so like that was, there was like tricks like that. Um, especially when you get to the finale of LA Macabre, there's some ridiculous stunt insanity that's actually way safer than you would expect, you mm -hmm. know, um, tying smoke bombs to the grills of cars and, you know, like doing like three takes like that in like 30 minutes and shooting the whole finale. Like the whole, I think there's like a seven, there's like a five or six minute action sequence at the end of the first season, the second season that we shot in like an hour because uh -huh. like the sun was going down and so wow. we just had to keep moving um and it's stupid it should have taken days um <laughs> but so, i don't know we just have so many of those collected over time you know shaken down by locals chased out of locations by politically ideologically different people mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. so uh you know, just lots and lots of weirdness. All the barrel holes, you know, Dave and I had to dig ourselves or oh, like my friend man. Jenna helped with. So like, you know, just, oh, like whenever there's a barrel in the ground in that show, like me or Dave had to like go out into the desert and dig it up. Cause it's wow. like, again, there's, there's like four of us. Wow. There's not a giant crew. So yeah, I mean like really like LA macabre party stories could actually just be its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So there's, there's an idea for yeah. you. Um, well, there's an idea for you. You're, you're yeah. not writing. You're trying to figure out what. <laughs> <laughs> You'd still be working, but you know, yep. medium. Be perfect. Oh uh, what about, um, you know, like just, we, we always ask our guests what's, you know, a piece of advice you could give somebody in the same um, corner of the industry or somebody who's trying to, to get into the industry, but 
Uh, is there something, I mean, either way you want to pass on to a listener who has uh, high-minded ambitions of becoming a filmmaker, a writer, producer, editor, uh, anything you could share? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, obviously I have lots of thoughts on lots of things, um, but <laughs> as, as you've seen over the last over an hour, um, but uh, I mean, you know, this is not meant to be at all cynical, but just to be realistic, like um, you have to love it. You, mm. you really have to, to love it because it doesn't love you back. You know, um, it, you know, there's a, there's a line in the wire. I love the wire, you know, mm-hmm. surprise. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a line, um, Clark Peters says to, um, to, to McNulty Freeman says to McNulty he's like the job will not save you. Um, there's not a parade at the end of this, you know, and like, I guess you get a premiere. That's our parade, but, um, but to like really do this, like you have to want it because you love it and because you can't see yourself doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Like if you could be happy doing anything else, you should probably go do that. And mm-hmm. it's not to be negative or there's no shame in that. Like um, it's probably very pragmatic um, and, and you'll probably live a very full life, full of steady income. Like, um, <laughs> like this is uh, this, I, I think that this is the balance we were talking about that I had to find. Because in a way, it has to be something that completes you and it can consume you. And to some extent, you probably should have a little bit of that struggle because mm-hmm. otherwise, why would you stay in one of the most expensive cities in the US, mm-hmm. you know, um, in an industry where there's no guarantee that you will have any sort of success, you know, that, that there's no actual ladder to getting to where you're going, you know you meet the right person, you, you get, you know, you hit on the right thing at the right time, you know, you get lucky. Um, and once you get lucky, then you have to be good, you know? Um, so, you know, like you just have to be prepared for that mentally. And, and the best way to understand that is to just understand that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, and, you know, to the extent that I have any, um, superpower here, it's just my tendency to, really decide that I'm going to do something like mm-hmm. yeah if it's going to take five years to make season two of LA Macabre that's what we're going to do I'd prefer it not take five years um but like not finishing is never an option right um and for some people it is for some people like they really do get halfway through their project or they get it all the way to post and then they can't afford to like finish it through post to like you know post is where a lot of indie films go to die mm-hmm. um and so you know, it just has to be something that, you know, there's no other option, but to like do it this way and get it done. Um, so, uh, yeah, that definitely the marathon, not a sprint, like you have to love it. You have to really want it, you know? Um, and it is a business of relationships, you know, and, and there's a negative way to frame that where like, it's who, you know, and sure that's true, but also it's a system of vouching and Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit of like, this is who I trust. This is who I would want to work with. So there are two sides to that as well. And, you know, you, you know, being a good person and having good relationships is, is I think pretty essential, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think this entire interview is, you know, a testament to that. The fact that, you know, I, we sat down to start this podcast in September with a few people that we know 
And, you know, we, we, we've obviously never met you. This is the first time we've, we've ever met virtually, so to speak. So um, right, right. I feel like projects like this are giving people, especially during COVID, the time to meet, uh, you know, new networking partners, mm-hmm. people that share the same interests. So more projects, hopefully will get made. And uh, I just hope that, you know, you coming on here and, you know, giving us your time on the podcast, we can uh, hopefully, you know, nobody that has stalkerish vibes, but somebody who, you know, would reach out and say, Hey dad, you know, I, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about a project or, you know, just, yeah. it's just yeah. really cool how everything links and you're exactly right. It is a business of networking and relationships. And, uh, I'm just yeah. glad we, we've had you on here. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's been a blast to be here. Yay. Uh, thanks for, thanks for letting me ramble this much. Cause it, obviously I really enjoy discussing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun. Good. Well, it was great. It was we love talking uh, to all of our guests, and every every week it's we're like, okay, are we ready? And then it just goes, and it, yeah. there's no effort, and it's awesome. And so uh, we're glad to add you to that roster. Um, with that in mind, uh, friends, listeners who have been sticking with us, um, please make sure you are continuing to uh, follow us on all of our um, social media stuff. Um, we're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you'll get updates through that. Also like subscribe to us on whatever podca- podcast platform. Podcast. Uh, blah, blah. Uh, you, you know, and, and uh, please rate and review us if you want a free sticker. Um, if you review us nicely, we'll send you one. So um, there's always that option. Um, what else? Tyler. <laughs> Sorry, Stephanie's hands are clasped, everybody. Uh, yes, She's really they are. I'm very, um, <laughs> I'm, it's my Italian side coming up. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, another point, if any of you listening here are looking to join the industry or are already in the industry looking to share your story, we'd love to have you on the show and, uh, you know, have some time together with a, a little virtual chit chat. So please email us at pwrp.pod at gmail.com. We'll get back to you and i'm pretty sure less than 90 seconds because like <laughs> most people we're waiting on unemployment and still uh you know just attentive to our phones so yeah pwrp.pod at gmail.com we'd love to have you on and uh yeah is there anything else that we're- no uh dan we always end every episode with a very awkward goodbye because we this is what episode 20 and we still haven't figured out how to say goodbye normal so never gonna happen Nope. Bye. Bye. Bye.